The Tea Stop In podcast series is inspired by the memory of the last surviving founder of the Australian Cinematographer Society, my friend, the late John Leake ACS. When he and his wife Marion retired from the film industry, they bought a little motel outside Sydney and it became a tradition for cinematographers and other filmmakers to stop in and have relaxed conversations about the industry and the craft of cinematography. It earned the nickname of the Tea Stop Inn. This series sets out to recapture the spirit of those conversations, but this time we're inviting you to listen in. T-Stop Inn. I'm Ben Allen. Welcome to the T-Stop Inn. Tom Gleeson is a talented and incredibly tech-savvy cinematographer. He's worked extensively across all different forms, from TV to feature films, and has worked with analogue to digital video, 16 and 35mm film. When we catch up, it's usually a deep dive into technology and where things have been and where they're going. Tom, welcome to the T-Stop Inn. Morning, Ben. So you, you started off in the industry at the ABC. That was... was Yes, that, yeah. that was my, my first job in the industry was at the ABC where I was incredibly lucky and got a cadetship yeah. back in and, the dark ages. And that's, as the national broadcaster, you know, they, they had a tradition of training. I mean, in, Absolutely. In, in contrast to when I started at a regional commercial television yep. station and basically the training was, here's a camera, don't screw up. <laughs> <laughs> yes, being the ABC... Uh, and they very much model themselves on the BBC, there was a very extensive and committed training program at the time. I mean, it was, I, can't, I still look back and can't believe how lucky I was. Uh, I didn't really at the time realise how competitive it was when I went for the, the test. You had to sit a test. And they said, turn up at this date and you can sit for a test. And there was hundreds and hundreds of people queuing up to get into this ginormous hall where you had to sit for three hours and do this written test, which was incredibly intimidating. I, I couldn't, I couldn't believe. I mean, I, I thought, oh my god. Still, it was a unique and incredibly valuable. I, I mean, I won't go into detail, except uh, you know, it was a truly committed program. Mm. So, uh, so you you got the job, mm. cadetship, in that competitive environment. What do you think gave you the edge? Um, there was politics going on at the ABC and I think they were deliberately looking for different sort of people. I had a university degree in communications and I think that was a plus. And I was, and somewhat uniquely, I also had practical experience in the sense that I had, through all my teenage years, made Super 8 movies where wow. I would con, yep. and I mean con, my <laughs> friends into helping me make these science fiction extravaganzas. Dare I say pre-Star Wars when it wasn't cool. <laughs> so people would turn up for a day and after one hour I'd be really bored. Oh, my God, what am I doing here? I, I still haven't been game to ask my cousins whether they've forgiven me yet. Yeah. <laughs> the exact same situation. <laughs> yes. Well, you can always threaten them with actually showing people the yeah. footage. But um, it, at a time when that was very unusual and the technology was very limited, you used Super 8 cameras, which were really weren't terrible cameras, the, the stock was incredibly difficult to use, the dynamic range, the sensitivities, you know, at the amateur level was a real challenge to, you know, not come back with just a roll of black film. Yeah. So I, I think that got me into the, I'll never know, but I think that was a big factor. Mm. So, okay, you started this cadetship at the ABC. What sort of equipment were you working with there? This is the mid-80s uh, and that was a critical time certainly at the ABC because they were trans uh, – at that stage when I started the ABC, they were still shooting a million feet of reversal film every wow. year. Wow. So pretty much everything but studios, which would be video, sport was mainly video, but news, magazine, documentaries, they were still all shot on film. Wow. And f for many good reasons, 16mm equipment was lightweight – so we'd be talking about like ARRI 16SRs? Oh, only drama got the ARRI. Oh, really? Yeah, no, no, no. We used ACLs. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> and and news often used the CP16s. Yeah, yeah. Because they had double system sound. Right. So not many film cameras yeah, yeah, had yeah. sound built into them. Having said that, 99.9% .9 of all the uh, footage shot there was reversal and we had mm. their own, our, our own in-house lab. 
But at the time, there were video cameras. Betacam was coming onto the market. That made a lot of sense for news and current affairs. Yeah. But at that stage, the camera people had a fair amount of say and the union had a, a lot of influence. So when I was there, there were Betacams sitting in boxes, the original Betacam 1. Wow. But no one would use them. That'd be the, the BVP 1. BVP 1, yes. Wow. Um, and, and rightly so, the operators knew that um, they would be very quickly ghettoed into video world. And it's kind of forgotten now, but there was... Um, there was a big demarcation between oh, film and video. That you really weren't a true cinematographer if you were shooting video. Yeah. You know, you had to be shooting film. So a lot of people didn't really want to make that push and a lot of older guys who just really just were grumpy old men who didn't want to embrace new technology. Mm. So did you have any kind of standout mentors there? Not really, only in a sense that they moved us. The nature of the training program, we were supposed to do film, film, video, sound, editing, partly to avoid union problems and demarcation. All the trainees were trained in every field, wow. in every department at the ABC. So you could be in telecine, you could be in sound dubbing, studios, OBs, film camera. Uh, that was done by the ABC for political reasons, but, you know, in terms of as a training program, it was absolutely fantastic. You learnt every mm. aspect of the trade on, on a practical level because not only did you have to train in it, you had to work in it. So mentors, yes. Funny if I bumped into Steve Winden, the ACS, and I worked with him for a few days. Wow. And uh, literally the day, his last, his last days at the ABC, he was about to quit. Wow. And he's, he, he told me, and I remember very clearly, he's probably forgotten, we had a lot of training about lighting ratios of two to one and do this and do that technical stuff. And, yeah. uh, you know, I'd sucked all that up as a, as a student, I suppose, and chatting to, to Steve and he was just talking about what he was doing. He was like, ah, oh, stuff that. No, no, go 20 to one. You know, let's do this and do that. And I was like, wow. Yeah. You know, you can break the rules. Yeah. And that, that is a valuable lesson. Definitely. So what happened when you finished the cadetship? When I – well, I, I actually in a sense didn't finish the cadetship. As I, came, as I was drawing to the end, I had a uh, – I just had to make some big decisions in my life of where I wanted to go and wanted to, what I wanted to do. And I thought, well, maybe the camera department isn't a lifetime choice. And I applied for a job at Channel 9 as a producer, which wow. frankly I did as a practice session, but I got the job. <laughs> um, which is a bummer. <laughs> so I went across to Channel 9, GDV 9 now in Melbourne. Wow. And after a year there, I really knew that I wanted to be in cameras. Wow. I remember um, my my first agent, because I, I was at that time directing and editing and shooting. And, and one day she sat me down and said, look, you can do all this stuff, but you've got to be one thing. Yeah. What's yeah. If you couldn't do anything else on a production, what's the one job that you couldn't give up. Yeah. And and for me that was cinematography. And that was totally true of its time. The world has changed. Absolutely. I, I think at the very top professional level you really just do one job. But there nowadays the technologies have changed, the access to technology completely changed. has changed. So therefore, especially I think in television, even in network television now, yeah. I, I know guys who are producing TV shows mm. and they're shooting them. Yeah. And they're doing the sound. And some of them are then cutting the stories. Yep. And and 20 or 30 years ago that just wasn't practical to the same extent. It wasn't practical and, frankly, no one would have allowed you to do it. Yeah, yep. And probably for good reason. Mm, mm. So yeah, after Channel 9 I, I, I left and then after a year at Channel 9 I promised myself never ever to work for the man ever again. It wasn't a really happy time at Channel yeah. 9. It was... Uh, um, I was very naive when I went to – no, I didn't realise – I didn't really understand commercial TV. I never really watched much as a child and then working mm. directly at the ABC. So it sounds very snobby. But the shallowness of mm. – of, and I, I will add the ABC had a fantastic professional and open, non-sexist, progressive feel about it. Well, yeah. Channel 9 – felt like I'd slipped back into the 1970s mm. and was not a great work environment. So I was happy wow. to be out. Yeah. But then I knew that cameras were, were is what I really was truly passionate about. I had to learn that, I, th- I suppose. Yeah, yeah. So what was the next step? How did you get back into camera? Well, you know, it, I, went f- I went freelance. 
which is not an easy thing to do when no. you start. Very tough. But I was lucky enough, and, you know, so this was a while ago, I was lucky enough to have a few contacts. I'd worked in the business. They were a few because they were, most of my contacts were ABC, so they weren't in mm. the commercial world. Yeah. But I obviously had training experience so I could talk to people mm. and they would understand that I did know what I was talking about. So I picked up freelance camera work. I did a lot of – I did sports OBs oh, as yeah. a camera operator, which you sort of think, oh, yeah, whatever. But it was looking it was a back – a lot of focus involved focus in every sense of the word. Focus and thinking ahead and operating. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think – you never want to do too much of that sort of stuff, but as a training ground, it, it is valuable to have a camera and really be thinking what's going to happen and chase that ball and mm. be there at the right time and you know become become aware of your of your environment. Mm. But it was a tough business; that was all low end stuff. I got a small job at a production company based out of Penrith, and we made little corporate videos. And I probably did that for a couple of years, uh, and then I think three or four years in, I went. I need to step up and I bought a camera. So what, what camera was that? <laughs> I bought an LDK90 Philips. by, no, by, by Bosch. Bosch. Ah. Yeah, the, the ownership of that camera system is very convoluted. It changed yeah, yeah, over yeah. the years. But at the time. it ended up being Philips, didn't it? Yes, yeah. yes. Bought by Philips and also there was someone else. Was it Grass Valley? It was BTS. Or? Oh, BTS. Oh, my yeah. God, I've forgotten. Yeah. But it was a very unusual decision I made there and I look back and think that was an awfully brave thing to do because the world was utterly Sony. Yeah, it was. I mean, utterly. Sony dominated the business through cameras, post-production. Mm. They owned the formats. They owned the editing gear. They were putting the routers. I mean, the world was Sony. Yeah. But at the time, um, it just changed from Betacam to Betacam SP. Yep. And that... Sony has made some wonderful cameras. Yeah. But that time the camera was terrible. I think it was a 5. The BV, uh, yeah, I used the BVP5. Yeah. It, it was placed by it the was seven. a dog. Because there were a 6. <laughs> and, yeah. and then they came good with the BVW400. Yes, a which few is a good years camera. Later, yeah, which yeah. Was and a then eventually camera. they built a DigiBeta, which is yeah. probably one of the greatest TV cameras ever yeah. made yeah, yeah, in yeah. context of its time. And and the from the BVW400 to the you know, the current ENG cameras, it's basically the same body design. Yes. Now, but the BVP5 because was Because it's so not, good. It, they, it they, so suits they, its they purpose. Fought, you know, with that 400 camera, they got it right. Yeah. But before that, they were still struggling with the ergonomics what, of it. Yes. But the biggest problem, and we are going down a rabbit hole that's probably more historical <laughs> than anything, but the colour science was particularly poor. Yeah. The resolution was poor. And the Philips or the LDK or Bosch Philips, whoever the hell they were, they had a different idea of what the colour science was going mm. to be and it was so, uh, way more pleasant. People would look at the images and go, oh, oh, I, I get that kind of reaction, not wow. due to my skill level but <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, they, they really brought a, di- a different look to the cameras where everyone had really been looking at the same Sony cameras for yeah, a good yeah. 10 years. I think Ikigami, there were a few other yeah, manufacturers yeah. out there. But uh, uh, so I made that decision. And that was a big decision because that was, I think, cost sixty thousand Australian dollars wow. at the time, which was just an absolute small. Fort. You could buy an apartment. Yeah, you could buy an apartment. My brother bought a, an apartment at the same time in Mossman. Wow! So that's the kind of money <laughs> invested. But th- of course, that sort of investment is a ginormous a motivator. Yeah. So I literally got the production book and started a, and just sat there day after day working my way through production companies, ringing people, tell them who I am, what I'm doing, that I'm available for work. And that was very effective. And I, I think I didn't, I didn't get past G. Wow. And I was, I was working. It was a very limited pool. Uh, the, the I co- guess there's, there's something about the fact that the price of entry was so significant exactly. very that significant. it wasn't a crowded marketplace. Absolutely not. Look, it's probably border, maybe a little on oversupply, but, yes, it's never – it was very hard to break in mm. without some sort of network connection. So, so you had, yeah, a bit of a network. You had some solid technical knowledge and you had a camera, a decent, yes. you know, serious camera. And, and, the, and the camera at that stage was a passport to yeah. some extent that people believed if you owned one of them, well, you must be a cameraman. Yeah, I mean, you foolish as that was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the first few jobs I did, oh, my God. I think I, yeah, yeah. They, yeah, it's a it's a steep learning curve, and I made some mistakes in the early days. And people pulled me aside gently, and said, "Tom, 
do that. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so you learn. Uh, there's so much at stake that that you you learn very quickly. Mm-hmm. Just thinking about back to cameras of that era, mm. the the big thing that stands out to me is batteries. They like, sucked them down. They were just nickel cadmium. I think was yeah. the chemistry. What a what a I th- constant burden that was. I, I, I think the efficiency of a nickel cadmium compared to a lithium ion. It'd be a factor of five or six. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember if you had a good NICAD battery in yeah. the, the BVW 400, 20 minutes maybe. I was about to say 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They were easy to change and the yeah, cameras yeah. turned on very quickly. Yeah. But uh, you had to take a lot of those with you for I a day I think I carried about 10 a day. Yeah, same. Uh, they were smallish batteries, yeah. I will add. Yeah. The watt hours in them, I, I, I don't know. But that battery technology has just come such a vast. Huge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huge improvement, and we'll continue. Thank God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I think we're very lucky there these days. Yeah, look, it's almost embarrassing. I look back to when I started, which was the eighties, and the technological change is—it feels medieval. When I look back yeah. and think what I was doing and how we were doing things, especially the film stuff. Yeah, you know, film post-production. <laughs> I, you know, I don't know about you, but I, I feel very lucky to have experience that transition or a lot of that transition? Yeah. Look, my personal feeling is that I think films sometimes people over-nostalgia. Absolutely. The reality because it was slow, inefficient, incredibly expensive at every level. Yeah. Those expenses did did mean a certain discipline was required, which was a good thing. That was a good thing. But no one would ever go back. Back, it just costs so much money to do things, which is, which was the joy of working in a broadcast or a production company at that period. Because if you want, and all during the time I was working in this place, I would make my own little movies. Yeah, as training and just learning, and especially the ABC, they're very supportive of that. If you didn't, long as you didn't use company time, you did it mm. off time. Yeah, but outside those systems, to make a short film, say. Was, it was a know, huge endeavour. Oh, a huge endeavour and an incredibly expensive endeavour. Mm. You'd have to be quite wealthy to shoot 16mm and process it and telecine it and then have a, a Steenbeck, which is a, half the size of a bedroom. Yep. Uh, you know, I mean, who has one of those in their house? So, yeah, uh, the de- democratisation of it, it really is a win. Yeah, yeah, all round. So from that point in time, mm. probably the next big change was the shift to digital. Yes. Although you you, sh- you did get into shooting 35 mil film, didn't you? Yes. The the, the, the shift to digital, I must have been – look, something I learned and saw going back to the ABC that changed from film to video is a lot of older men just were not interested. And I watched them and yeah. I watched them fall and fail because they just were grumpy and, oh, you know, don't want to learn all this new stuff. And I just – Watched that and went, that's not going to be me. So when digital came along, I embraced it. You know, I have an academic background. I'm interested. I, I, like, I like science. So mm. it was not difficult to, and of course, if you remember. It, it the, wasn't probably as intimidating as it was for a lot of people. A lot of people don't want to learn, yeah. more importantly. Mm. Um, I find it interesting. Yeah. And if you remember, the change to digital pretty much mirrored this, the growth of the internet. Wow, I had never thought of that, but that's very true. It, it allowed it's, a resource yeah, that yeah. we had never. I mean, I learned. Wow, I learned all my cinematography by going to the local library yep. and picking up books, generally written in 1963. Yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> I get them, and like two people have taken it out in the last 20 years. <laughs> and you would read these books. Yeah, really same. dated, dated books. Um, information was really hard to come by for yep. outsiders outside, unless you're working in a yeah, say, yeah. broadcaster. Or production company but the internet opened a whole new window and you could train yourself yeah and that's in a sense what i did with digital and there was a lot of sharing of information around that time i, I you know we were both oh, very absolutely. active on cml the internet was not a commercial enterprise like it is now yeah so it was much more open open sourcey could you yeah. call it that yeah Mm. Uh, Much more kind uh, of collaborative. I, I will add to, in terms of cinematography, the change from analogue to digital didn't really change that much. I mean, obviously it changed record formats and the way the cameras behave, but the, the kind of, the, in a sense... The craft the, itself the didn't craft change. The craft itself, 
you know, whether, say you went from Beta Cam SP and you bought a Digi Beta, I mean, hey, it's, oh, it's got a better dynamic range and it's a better camera all around, sure, but... It's details. You know, I mean, the, the little cassette thing you'd put in and record on a ones and zeros yeah, yeah. rather than little wavy analogue lines. But, you know, it, I don't think it, it, it changed and certainly the operationally price. it didn't really no. change very much at all. No. That came later yeah. with the digital revolution, but initially it was beh- pretty and, much and, behind and, the scenes. And that, that leap from DigiBeta to HD Cam was similarly... The same machine. You know, the, you could swap those just cameras. Just a turbocharger put in. Yeah, yeah exactly. It um, was just it was the same, same body, same functionality, just more. Same <laughs> bloody B4, 3CCB, 230-inch <laughs> goddamn sensors. Uh, and, and, and that that B4, two-thirds-inch, three-chip yeah. was where things were going to keep going until yes. something happened in 2008. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And if you, if you wind back pre-2008 cinema... You know, the very top end was pushing into it as well. I mean, the, yeah, yeah. the Star Wars two and three were done on Sony Godzilla with Panavision. They yep. Panavised yep. the HD cam, mm. I which was remember. for its time was a good system, but it was still based in that that ENG. Well, recording eight yeah. bit and still two th- two thirds inch. Yeah, um, yeah. And then I, a few years later, there was the the Panavision Genesis and the Sony yeah, with, F35, no, that, Panavision which Genesis finally, was a change. Finally, uh, gave us a, yeah, uh, a thirty five uh, mil size sensor. Yeah, and I think that's ultimately where but the, at a price. At a, oh my god, at a quarter of a million dollars. I would have thought that would have bought you just the body. The body, yeah. If that, if you could buy one, not a functional. Not kit. that you could buy one. I do wonder where they go. All those cameras. <laughs> they go to camera heaven, or the, or a, or a dumpster somewhere. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure. Matt so, Allard's got an F35. Oh, okay. That he I mean, picked up for next time. A wonderful, thing. wonderful machine its yeah. day. But I think yeah. there was a quarter, $200,000 yeah. Um, yeah. machine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just for the body again. Yeah. yeah. So where were we? So there was something really significant that changed all that. Yes. And ultimately, I think it was, you know, Red who kicked that can yeah. in 2008 with the, um, the Red One, which was. Now, I've got to be careful because, like all these things, the development's never that linear. Mm. As you say, Panavision Genesis have been available. Yep. Ari had built the D21 or the D20. That's right, yes. But those was, were all still recording HD resolution. Those cameras didn't difference. have recorders. Yeah. And as you say, they used that tape recording model, yep. that video kind of model. Uh, and probably Red's big move was to move to the IT model. Yeah, yeah. It recorded the data. I mean, all the cameras were recording data in a sense, but mm. it recorded it onto hard drives. There was no videotape, which is an incredibly linear, inflexible system. Yep. The moment you just have ones and zeros, you can pretty much do what you want with it. So the red one mm. could easily record at different frame rates with like a film different camera. different resolutions. It could shoot different resolutions. So suddenly the straitjacket had been taken off. Yeah, and you got on board with that pretty early on, didn't you? The, that w- the writing on the wall was so clear but that, it, yes, it, I sold I, my f- – I had an Arri, Arri 3, yep. sold that. What, what kind of also gets forgotten with film, if you were shooting a commercial, you, you know, you might shoot anything between 5 and 20 rolls of film, but that mm. was $350 a roll, if yeah. memory serves me. And Just that to buy got you it, five yeah. minutes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then you end up with a can of unexposed film. So you've got to then go pay process, someone to process it. Yes, and then take it and turn it into a digital form. Mm. So it was, it could be, on an average commercial, that could be anything between ten dollars to $20,000 just to end up with something you could start editing. The rushes. Yeah, yeah. And then the post-production part would start. Before Red actually, or even after they started delivering, they, I think it's very easy to forget how controversial that was, what was they a, were promising. Yeah. Like the, the, the reactions, no I remember question. some really like it surprised violent me. It surprised me. Look, I think if you make any change, it's yeah. the nature of human society and, yeah. and people. And f- Red came from nowhere. Yeah. So a lot of people were like... <laughs> How you can know. this possibly be? And look, when I first read about it, I just ignored it. Yeah, it's like yeah, right. It, you know, when it when it when it got began to come closer, I will tell you what what changed my mind is when Red dot com came out as a website, and I wow. went, "They've bought Red. <laughs> they owned that word. What did that cost? Yeah, yeah. As, must a, be as a domain. <laughs> so I thought, oh, someone's got some money. Yeah. You know, so uh, sunglass money." Sunglass money, yeah. Yeah. But this is technology that was everyone was postulating, so it wasn't totally out of the blue. I think the biggest and issue I think the red the was, was the cost. Yeah, and I think the, the thing was 
that technology was going to filter through. Oh, of course. But yes. it probably would have taken five to ten years longer because the, Possibly, the yes. existing manufacturers without that impetus. The conservative would have held nature back. Of, of, of large manufacturers, yeah. which yeah. I understand. Oh, of course. Red took a punt. Yeah. And it could have fallen on its face. And also they didn't have existing products to protect. They yeah. didn't have any legacy products that they were going to undermine. And I think as they'll admit themselves is they were naive. They didn't know how hard it was going to be. They didn't know, exactly. <laughs> but look, in the end I bought a Red One um, in the early days and it proved to be an incredibly reliable machine. I had no problems with it. I lugged it around the world, took it into jungles, climbed up mountains with it. Oh, my God, it was so heavy. Now, at that stage, the well, certainly the Red One was only recording raw. And yes, people yes. were very – I remember people were very intimidated by the workflow. How did you deal with that? Because I think It was you, a huge struggle. Yeah. It was a real struggle. People – you know, interesting enough, a lot of people don't want to embrace change. Mm. And there was a lot of pushback because people were just like, whatever. Yeah. I mean, really? You're going to give me something different? Oh, my God. You mean I have to actually do something? People have built models. They'd made investments financially in certain systems. Mm. So there was a lot of pushback. So what I found is I took control of it for my clients – in the early days with Red, you come out with Raw, we'd go to a post-product, the big post houses, you remember mm. them? And they would they were charge. scared of it. They would charge film rushes rates to yeah. just transcode them. And of course they wanted to. <laughs> so clients would come back to me and go, oh, I paid $3,000 to turn this into ProRes or whatever, mm. blah, blah, blah. So in the end I would say to clients, you give that to me and the next morning you can have a drive with all the footage transcoded into any editorial format that you wish. Mm. and that allowed me to allow an extra control because I could give things a light grade, I well, would give them a, a one light daily, if yep. that makes sense. That's, that's the thing that I find very interesting about the fact that you did that as a functionality thing, but it, what it did is it gave you a More level control. of control over their first impression of the pictures. Absolutely, and no that's, question. that's what a lot of cinematographers lost in the early days of the transition to digital. It also gave you, strangely, ownership. Mm. because what would happen in, before that is the negative. You have no control over that. Negative would leave the camera and you possibly would never see it again. Mm. So I, I found on many occasions there could be problems. Yep. And I found whenever there was a problem, you would be blamed. The camera department would get the blame. And that would involve scratches, processing problems, mm. you know, things along those lines. But without the control of that negative, you could never argue your case. Yes. And Post was very good at pushing problems down south. Yeah, yeah. So the moment that negative was sitting on a hard drive, when people – and people continue to do that, I was very easily able to go to produce and go, well, here. Yep. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. And that that kind and of stuff disappeared very quickly. Yeah, yeah. And, in fact, that's probably, for me, um, the biggest thing – the biggest benefit of going to digital and the biggest con of film and mm. probably the biggest hesitation I would have about going back to film for something is – that gap with film between what you, the control you have in the shoot and then the, what yeah. ends up in post-production. Yeah. And with digital, you, it, it's, and there's a add, direct line there. That's about money. Yeah, yeah. And the projects I worked on, some low-budget movies, um, TV commercials, you didn't have a lot of power. Yep. So when whereas, we had whereas problems... Whereas in contrast, if, if you're Christopher Nolan, oh, film makes sense. Absolutely. And, and the lab will fall... They will make it work. To make it yeah. work for you. Yep. But I found a few times errors would creep in and the lab would just push blame every direction but the direction it was needed to go yep. and we never had the clout and you just didn't own – you didn't own the negative, you didn't have the control. Mm. So with digital, that's no longer the case. Yeah. Looking back now, the red one seems – with primitive. modern eyes, very primitive, yeah. very cumbersome. But for its time it was so small, so lightweight, so cheap. Well, it was lightweight compared to a 35mm camera. It was. So uh, in the context of its day, mm. <laughs> the control system, the little black and white screen and joystick, oh, my God, it just seems, yeah, 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 yeah. It's like, I don't know. But they, from that starting point, yeah. they progressed very rapidly. Yeah, as in, did the entire world. Yes. Because suddenly Everyone was playing um, Ari and Sony went, Oh my God! This is uh, happening. We better get on the train. Our timelines are not good, and yeah. I think Ari quickly scrapped the D twenty. Sony, Sony had really had fallen behind in this race. Yes, I think they're in, from from a leadership position. They from, had yeah. fallen well behind because yeah. they they thought that leadership position with the technology on the train that they were 
in the direction yeah. they were going was going to last a lot that longer. It is the nature of being that number one position. Yeah. Now, Sony's turned that around and mm. now a, a very innovative company doing really interesting things. Yeah. But, yeah, they, they, they went to a oh, hiatus is the wrong word. And, and quite frankly, if Red, if Red hadn't come along and done what they did, yeah. Sony probably would have been able to keep to their timeline. Possibly, possibly. Having said that, if Red didn't do it, someone else might have. Probably. The technology had reached a level that it was now possible for small operators to, yeah, yeah. to, to, to do something interesting. So the, speaking of smaller operators, the other thing that happened in 2008 was the 5D Mark II. Yes. And I, I'm, I, you know, pretty happy to say I'm fairly tech savvy and pretty good at picking these. Yeah. I missed that. I, uh, I called that one wrong. Yeah, I, I look, I, 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 in a sense I did too. I didn't understand. I, I, I was in a sense. What a big deal it was. 2008 already at a level that DSLRs were not an option. Yeah. The clients I was working for would not accept a DSLR. I did do some smaller jobs with, with a Canon 5D. Yep. But the day-to-day work didn't involve it. But <laughs> I will add with a Canon 5D, I hated it as a camera. Yeah. It just drove me because it was not it – it's, it's, it's a DSLR. Camera. It's a great stills camera. But it had that full-frame sensor. Yep. And the few times I've used it, I used it back then – I was like, wow, there is something about this camera I don't get. Why does this images sometimes look absolutely amazingly three-dimensional on a level that I'm mm. not – well, I can't get on a red one. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't really fully understand it. Uh, you know, people say, oh, it's full frame, but I didn't really kind of – but, yeah, the, the 5D set the scene. Mm. And then it was a couple of years later, I, I remember – clicking on the link in the announcement about the Arri Alexa. Yes. Because I'd used the D20, the D21 and thought they were oh, okay. But they okay, were they kind of, yeah. I used the Viper. Miss. I, yeah, I used the Viper too. <laughs> the thing with the Viper was I remember standing there with the engineers and going, what's the ASA rating of it? And they said somewhere between 200 and 500 ASA. And I, my reply was, that's somewhere between winning an award and getting fired. Yeah. <laughs> it was, uh, you know, there was some good ideas there. Very good ideas. Um, you know, it was the first digital camera. It's always interesting disconnect camera. between engineers who yeah, yeah. build these cameras and and the people who use them. Yeah. yeah the, 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 what the Viper did was introduce the concept of RAW. Yep, and log. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, I, I was shooting possible. with a kind of pseudo log. It's not log. truly RAW, I hear you. Yeah. But, yeah, probably it's a better way of putting it. Mm. No one had... Th- Ever done that? It was the first camera with a built-in, first digital camera with built-in log curve, and it was modelled on Cineon. Which interestingly, I noted that Panavision have gone back to the Cineon log curve okay. for their DXL2, which is it's probably Cineon-like. Is, yeah, yeah. So there were all these. You know, you had the Red One, you had the Thompson Viper, you, the F900 was still yeah, kicking absolutely. around in its oh, yeah, totally. you know, evolved form. Yeah. And then I clicked on the link for the announcement of the Ari Alexa. And just kind Is of scrolled 2010? through 2010. Yeah. Scrolled through the specs and I went, oh my God, they've nailed it. Mm-hmm. And, and it have a, they nailed it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have thought and nine it's years still later? The it's benchmark. Pretty much just, I wouldn't say the same camera because internally lots changed, especially yeah. in the recording. But that, that, that but operationally and aesthetically, it's still the same, same camera. Yes, uh, I will add that's a ARI policy and it's a good policy. One thing Red has done by kicking the can and by being disruptors, they do make it difficult. A lot at stake on a shoot. As budgets go up, it, it, can, yeah. it, can, it can positively turn mean if there's problems. Mm. And you are responsible. So by creating consistency, ARI, you know, that creates a huge advantage and a, and a comfort zone for a lot of people. So mm. it's a plus. Yep. And I think with digital cameras, uh, there's as much value in familiarity with the camera and the system yes. as there is in whichever one it is. Yeah. And I think because ARRI have maintained that consistency in their, their operation and yeah. their, their overall look, it's been a safe place for a lot of cinematographers to be and a lot of yeah. producers And to most choose. of the top end where budget – you reach a certain budget level, no one really cares what camera you pick. Mm. It's not really in the producer's mind. He's spending a lot of money elsewhere. So if you can save a couple of hundred bucks a week going with a different system, no one's going to be interested. Yeah. So, yeah, Ari is probably a number one choice in most big end productions. Not to say there's not Red, Panasonic, Sony's, they're mm. all out there, but Ari dominates. Yep. And it's, you know, there, there's definitely an Ari look 
and yes. there's there's definitely a, a uh, look that red tends towards. But at the same time, and Sony, one of the things that really struck me recently is I'm, I'm rewatching The Crown, mm. which is Sony F55. F55. Yeah. And it's a very airy look that they've got with yeah. that. Look, let me – and Steve Yedlin, if, mm. if, you, if anyone out there wants to do some research there – puts it really nicely, the ARRI colour science, the red colour science, the sunny colour science, you know, they're valuable. But, but in essence, at the end of the day, it's a you suggestion. You never use them. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. if you turned up at a colour grade and he just put the ARRI log to 709 LUD on, you'd be like, what? So the crown, the virtually every single production from mid to, to the top end is going into a colourist and that look is being created. Mm. So if you took – I'd love to do this test one day. If I took – you know, uh, Ari, Sony, Panasonic, just the log, the, the rules, yeah, yeah. and then gave them to a colorist, and then we graded them, and then asked people, "Can you tell?" Because that basic log raw, even though there is subtle differences, I don't question that there'll be, mm. there'll be different different responses to color to dynamic range, but it's pretty small. It is. It really is, and I think the the bigger difference is in the standard LUTs. Mm-hmm. Oh, of like course. The, the, yeah. what, the, what the cameras are actually capturing different in Different philosophies, raw, yeah. There's different philosophies in the I mean, lots of funny thing. I mean, there's no one look for everything. No. So Ari just chooses this as a default. Red has mm. their default. I will add the red colour science has come a long, long way. The Ari IPP used to kick Red's can fantastic. down the road. Yeah. Um, the M sensor, the MX sensor, they were quite colour deficient, really, and uh, it took a truly color, talented colourist to really make them sing. But they still could. They could, yeah. But it took um, a lot more you're, effort. You're working hard. Yeah. From the Dragon on, and I'm running a Monster at the moment, mm. uh, and the colour is it just pops. Yeah. You go, oh my god. Going they they really here, but yeah, they really hit their stride with the the, the yeah, Dragon. They've got they? that under control. I yeah. think I don't have any problem with the red colour science anymore. It was their Achilles heel. Mm-hmm. Yep. So. You know, with cameras, I think camera men and camera women, camera people, should we say, we can overestimate the value. I'm, I'm prepping for a film at the moment mm. and there is hundreds and hundreds of decisions and thoughts. Every single shot has to be thought. Mm. What are we going to do? How is this the best way to do it? Yep. There is huge decisions to be made in terms of lighting, blocking, the choice of camera is pretty much low down on my list of worries. Yeah. You know, at the moment we'll probably, frankly, we'll probably shoot Monstro, maybe maybe an LF, who, you know. Yeah. I'm even thinking some scenes I might even get a Panasonic Vericam because we've got some low-light stuff. I and personally really think we can. There. Yeah, and this is kind of flashback sequence. Mm. Personally, I think I could even match the cameras, but if it's a separate scene, it won't, yeah. it won't matter. But, yeah, the choice of lenses is probably a, maybe a, Bigger decision than the actual yeah. camera. I might make a the big decision for me might be on the sensor size. The even a bigger decision: am I going to go anamorphic or spherical? Yeah. You know the camera. I mean, as I say, so the let's, red. Let's talk. Let's talk anamorphic versus spherical. Yeah. Because back in the film days, when when you were doing a photochemical finish, the the choice of anamorphic meant that you were getting a bigger negative area. Yes. And so yeah. you're, you're maximizing that frame. Better resolution yeah. and less grain. Less grain. And, of course, compared to Super 35, yep. you were also not going through the optical step to yeah. squeeze it. Yeah. So and even the, the 35 the, people forget, you just roll back the 80s and you look at films from the 80s and the grain. Yeah. Watching on a 50-inch you know, TV and, yeah, yeah. and it's crawling. Yeah. So back in the film days, anamorphic was a quality choice. Absolutely. Picture yeah. quality choice. Yeah. Clear and simple. But it's not that anymore. Yeah. Yeah, yes, it was also a, a choice of convention mm. too that well, big budget productions would tend to yeah. push into anamorphic because they could afford it. Yeah, <laughs> because lighting would increase. The, absolutely, that's um, the thing, isn't it? Focus becomes harder at a time yeah. that focus issues generally slipped past you, and you'd be reshoots the next day based on focus. So anamorphic with half the depth of field mm. was much more difficult process. Mm. But look, I'm a huge – look, you know my position. I was a huge fan of anamorphic. I was doing anamorphic on red one in the days where you couldn't even de-squeeze it. <laughs> wow. And we'd have a squeeze monitor and I had a projector. Yeah. Anamorphic. So wow. to look at the monitor, I would look through the projector. Because <laughs> 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 I just – I'm so in love with that look. Yeah. And it, it was. I think, you know, when, when our generation were growing up, yeah. because for the – 
probably the quality reasons as much as anything, the big films were mostly shot anamorphic. Yes. That look is deeply embedded in our Absolutely. subconscious. As a, as a visual convention yeah. that we understand. Even yeah, yeah. as a kid, I, would, I wouldn't understand what it was. But, but if you, I could see an anamorphic, it. I'd go, oh, it's going to be a big budget. Yeah, yeah, it's this is going to be spectacular. It's going to be a big movie. So, uh, and that's those visual conventions are, are very important signifiers. Very powerful. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and the, the, look, anamorphic has a certain beauty to the bokeh mm. that's, and I'm not talking yeah, about yeah, flares, because yeah. funny how everyone goes on about anamorphic flares, they're the least interesting thing for me. But that bokeh, mm. that distorted bokeh. Yep. So yep. It's very hard to discuss visual reactions because I think everyone's very different. But yep. for me, that bokeh and that lack of depth of field mm. because once you go to anamorphic, you've got pretty much full frame depth of field. Yeah, yeah. It's much more shallow and it's just it's, – it's, it's beautiful. Yeah. And I think the other thing that's changed is because with film you had – the, the modulation transfer function dropping off the sharpness at every step of the process. Yeah, yeah. Then, you know, you, you, you had an accumulation of softness. Yes, Through yes, the, the yes. whole An accumulation pipeline. of a lot of bad yeah. things. Yeah. And with, with digital you don't have that really yeah. happening. And so... Way less, yeah. The, the inherent softness, and it's funny talking about softness of anamorphic lenses because they used that bigger negative area, yep. the pictures were inherently sharper on film, but the lenses themselves, because of that extra optical element, were inherently softer. Yep. And so you put that into a digital context and they have a beautiful softness. Yeah, because they're not muddied by the analogue. That's right. The analogue process. So you've got those, those associations of this... Yeah. Look with big Although, movies, interesting, and, interesting, and then the softness that works on digital um, better than it did on film. My my thinking on anal, uh, anamorphic has changed a little bit just recently because I've recently upgraded to four K TV. I'm watching four yeah. K productions, and uh, uh, and I will admit I was a bit of a four K really <laughs> for TV. I, I didn't really think it would make that big difference. Yeah, but when I see f- a four K production shot with good lenses. I've never seen lenses. I've never seen lenses in a way that I can now in 4K. Wow. I'm seeing stuff in lenses that just just simply was hidden by mm. lower resolution. At 2K, you're beginning to see stuff for sure. Yep. At SD, oh my god, you yep. couldn't see anything. <laughs> but 4K is revealing so much more. And I, and I will say, I've loved those Lomos, the Cowers, mm. all those lenses for their character. But at 4K, they don't. At 4K, they are not resolving. Mm, I would not shoot a modern production again on those older glasses if it's going to a 4K. Yeah, wow. Because you're wasting your time having a 4K presentation because those lenses are not giving not you – Not up to it. Not up to it. Yeah. I mean, they, they were never designed for that kind of – Of course not. And, you know, I look – and I know some people – I've had this conversation with some people, they don't like – I don't like to call it sharpness, but mm. the clarity – yeah. Of 4K is, I, I, I love it. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's uh, that window effect. Look, I know for drama that can be a little bit of a struggle and I n- n- notice that a lot of productions who are sh- doing Netflix, yep. TRPs are choosing not to go the full sharpness. Yeah. It's mainly through lens choice and filtering. Yeah, yeah. The great thing about that sort of, of higher resolutions, it's your tool. Yeah, that's right. It's... You, you can choose you decide. to, yeah. You know, where do we want to go on that? And potentially you know, it could be used as a dramatic tool where mm. certain scenes are you could use super sharp glass, say master primes, yep. and then use older K35s for the flashback to the 70s. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, give use that as a storytelling tool. But, yeah, 4K, I'm seeing aberrations in glass, CA, Lenses mm. softening off to the edges. I'm particularly seeing mismatches. Really? You know, you can yeah. mix lenses, but, you know, no one's going notice. <laughs> but I'm, I'm looking at shots where they cut to the close-ups t- sharper than they're wide. Wow, um, yeah. Which all that stuff was hidden in the past. But yeah, I think once people get a 4K it, set and start watching it. I think it's, it's easy to overlook how much resolution was lost in the film printing process. Oh. By you time, know, like we we think about film as being four K, nah. but that's maybe on the negative, not but not on a print. Not a not, print in Australia. Not, not a print. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know how many generations a print would come down before it hit here. Yeah, and certainly um, not a 
print in a suburban cinema. Yeah, which was possibly using a projector that they'd bought in the 1950s. Probably. Yeah, and that yeah. projector lens would have been for the 1950s, I suspect. Yeah. So um, that's that's one of the I, – I think actually one of the biggest changes in the digital revolution in cinema mm. is in the theatres themselves. Oh. Like the quality of pictures we're so seeing on cinema better. screens now oh. compared to 15 years ago. Yeah. Absolutely. Compared to 12 years ago, is yeah. it's phenomenal difference. Yeah. And a lot of budget productions got especially punished. Yeah. Because um, making your interneggs and interposes, it was all a ex- very, very expensive business and mm. people would cheat cut on corners. that. Cut corners. And maybe if you're in LA and you're seeing the first print off the original neg. Yeah. But for all of us who saw it through maybe a couple of interpose, interneg, interpose, interneg, interpose, and then a second-hand print mm. that came from somewhere else with all the scratches and dirt Oh, my God, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. No, I remember no, seeing no. Star Wars Episode Two, which was the first big film shot digitally. And I, I saw it in a cinema in Hobart in Tasmania because mm. I was shooting a film down there on the same camera. Yeah, okay, and yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, okay, so. Yeah. And I went, oh, my God, God. <laughs> I'm screwed. And then seeing that same film that I was shooting then yeah. on a print struck straight from the neg, straight out of the, the film recorder, and it was – the quality was stunning. And I will add, like, the original Star Wars In negative comparison. was very, very badly damaged and had to be digitally restored mm. because they partly also did it because you could only print so many times off a negative. Yeah. So you'd from that original neg you'd make an interpose and then you'd print some new negatives that you'd print off. Yep. But you could... You, each time there would be a... Dest- it's a everything was a destructive process. Yeah, and which we just don't get with digital. No, no. And so picture quality doesn't suffer. Yeah. So pretty much what you... <clears throat> I'm sure cinemas still cheat on projector lamps and don't do the right thing, yada, yada, but it's it's such a vast improvement yeah, on the past. so much better. No question, yeah. And, and uh, let me add that modern televisions, you know, I've got oh, a recent LG OLED 55-inch feeding 4K and I, I I literally sometimes sit on my couch with my jaw down going, whoa, Com- compared I've never to seen what imagery was, like you know, this. a $50,000 broadcast grade one monitor. 100 nits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, it, 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 I, I think it, it, even though this it just happened so quickly, yeah. I think people very, very quickly forget that, you know. How far I, it's come. Yeah. I mean, I think in the 90s I had a 27-inch square television, which was awesome. Wait, 55 kilos. I remember that. <laughs> moving house was a nightmare. But that was a giant TV. That was giant like TV. benchmark. Yeah, yeah, and it would have been standard def and yeah. victim of broadcast ghosts and all yeah. the other thing. Yeah, no, oh, my God. The good old days? No, 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 no. <laughs> the other thing that we're really spoilt with now, I think, is lenses. Like our choice of lenses yeah. now. has never been. It, yeah. It's never been anywhere near what we've got now. Yeah, especially when you add into that the revival of so many older lenses. Yeah, yeah, that's the, right. The choice. I mean, look, I'm totally honest. When I was shooting film, 35 millimeter film, I mean, really, I mean, I, 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 I probably just use the same lenses almost. And it was it was Zeiss or Panavision. Zeiss Super Speeds. Yes. Yeah. You know, you know, maybe Mark Threes if we want to splash out. I, I look, Panavision lenses wouldn't fit because yep. they're PV mount. Of course. And in the days where cameras had a single mount, and that was it. Yeah. You, you know, might go to Ingenieur for a zoom. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or um, cook if you wanted something for zooms. You've no question. But, other um, than that, it but was yeah, it was very limited. Choice, very limited. Um, and I, I will say, you know, when even on thirty-five millimeter film, if you were outputting to standard definition, seven hundred and twenty pixels <laughs> <laughs> on a good day. <laughs> on a good day, yeah, yeah. Um, that's assuming you're a pal. Yeah. You know, I would often go super space because they would go T one four. Yeah, yeah. And you know, even a standard definition. <laughs> might could sometimes look a bit soft. Mm. God help us at HD and God help us at 4K. But, yeah, the, the lens choice, I think manufacturing lenses obviously come a lot cheaper and a lot easier. Mm. And it, I, I think something you just touched on there where we we kind of used to choose lenses for their sharpness. Quite often now people are choosing lenses for their softness. Yes, yes. Look, I'm not always from that school. Mm. Lens choice, I think, should be story driven, Absolutely. and certainly if you're doing a romance and mm. film, then maybe you don't want to be. Sharp's a funny word. Yeah, uh, look, it has I, a lot of different meanings. Yeah, absolutely, and 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 generally, I find if I'm seeing something that's been done well on good glass, it's not so much sharp; it just looks realer to me. Yeah, uh, more window. That's not always what you want, of course. Mm. But it, I don't think – I mean, like people talk about 8K and, they, you know, they're going to be sharper. They're actually are not sharper. Mm. They're smoother. 
because yeah. you know everything's everything's now fully resolved. I mean, almost nobody is putting artificial sharpening in because mm. which Cause I think they've got a, actual sharpening. Yes, and I think people <laughs> got confused detail. in the old days. You know, there'd be coring and yeah. oh, I forget the names of it, but there'd be artificial sharpening, and which was you know. It, it, was I think it, 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 it helped sell cameras and helped sell TVs, but it was quite destructive oh, it's on terrible. faces in particular. It's ugly. Yeah, 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 yeah. But that's just the limitation of the technology, so you mm. would add fake sensor sharpness. Yeah. But with cameras that resolve at, the, at, at pretty much stills level. Yeah, it's just you not know, necessary You would anymore. shoot a magazine, you know, I think mm. it's a red 35 million megapixels. You know, that, that would be good enough to shoot covers of magazines and although a lot of still cameras going past that. Yeah. But, but I know some people go, oh, it's overkill. But especially with smart compression that both Red and Sony use and even Panasonic, less Arri, that's another another discussion. It's just, it's just, I don't know, it's just getting so easy to um, record and move that stuff around. It's, no, yeah. it's not it's 2008 not anymore. anymore. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What was a big challenge then is now pretty easy. Yeah, well, I just do it on my iMac. Yeah. And, and I have no problems. You just, yeah, workflow is interesting. It's, it's an area that... There is a lot of com- way more confusion than there is in some ways in shooting. Absolutely, yeah, a lot more I would say. Yeah, and and a lot more potential for things to go wrong. No question, mm. no question. Some people do not have a fundamental understanding of the way things work, and while you don't need to be a technician, you should have a. You know, I, I'm, I'm get, stepping in dangerous. Area. Look, and the vast majority of posts that I've been involved with has, has run really well. Mm. And I've got to say, in 2019, I don't come across a lot of ignorance. Sometimes you yeah. think you could yeah. be doing this a little more efficiently. Yeah. But, you know, very people get the job done and it's and almost oh, always done yeah. well. Yep. And, uh, you know, most of that stuff has been figured out many years ago now. I don't but, know how you'd be but, in business if you don't. Yeah, exactly. But at the same time, I think where... Cinematographers used to need to have a very basic level of post-production, certainly electronic post-production. Yep. I think certainly for the generation coming through behind us, it, it's it's pretty essential that they have a thorough understanding of post-production. I agree. Look, even if you're not expected to do it, it's just such an incredible, valuable learning aid Yeah. to actually shoot footage and then actually, you know, people have it's, – it's cinematography, not photography – your job mm. is to build structure yes. and to put shots together that will make an editable story that will be effective and will touch people's emotions. And, you know, I, I think as you never, ever edit your own stuff, I, I, I think it's... You should try. You should try, yeah. Oh, look, I mean, <laughs> not even commercially. I yeah. mean, um, even if, because you can access footage so easily, yeah. just take a copy of a hard drive, put it together and see how it goes and, 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 and find yourself going, oh, I really should have... Maybe I should have got a reverse there. <laughs> now, I realise there's directors and there's other people involved. Yeah. But it's partly your job as the director of photography mm. to maybe some circumstances to be saying to directors, you know, should we get a reverse? Yep. Um, or that thing, that moment when the director has done their coverage and they turn to you and say, have we got it? Yeah. And yep. to be able to confidently a say coherent yes. coherent answer. Or we just need one more shot. Yeah. You are best served if we do this. Yep. And the same thing with colour grading. If you learn the basics and resolve, A, mm. you can analyse your own footage. Yes. Look at the yep. weaknesses, see where it's not working, where it is working and what the strengths are. And, and both in terms of learning the craft and fine-tuning, honing your skills, yep. but then also in terms of testing gear. Yep, yep. Getting and, familiar and let me with a suggest, new camera. Um, also in creating a language. Yes. So when you go – I mean, I, I've learned resolve, I know how to use it, and then I work with someone who really knows, <laughs> who has the art industry in their hands yeah. and I am humbled. <laughs> but but having said that, because I've trained myself on it, I can speak a language. Yeah, yep. So and instead so of that just whole process. Oh, a little bit more, a little bit more cooler, you know, a little bit to the left, or oh, I'll make it make a bit it more zing. moody. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> can you give it a bit more punch? I can be specific. You can say, you know, do you want to punch the limb again a little bit more? Yeah, that kind of stuff. Absolutely. And so you can kind makes of makes it easier can, for the grader. Makes the whole process faster and more efficient, and you can spend that time being creative. Yeah, absolutely. So look, there's value in all those things, and mm. all that stuff is so accessible. Yeah. I mean, so easily. You know, it's no longer big money. And you, I think you're talking about it's gone from a million and a half for a basic installation to mm. it's free on a laptop. And, <laughs> and going back to my early days, back back in the Jurassic, <laughs> I was trained. 
Yeah. I was on a curriculum and I learned processes. But now you can really do an awful lot of training and that, and, I, and, and that's a world that's almost disappeared. There mm. are, of course, film schools, et yep. cetera, et cetera. I would suspect your time is best spent in film school building relationships with people. Yeah. And that's something we could talk about because mm. we can talk about technology. And let me, let me just go – we, I know we've talked about tech. Yeah. I find it interesting. I, we could talk all day about talk, that. I, I could but. talk all day. But it's a trap. Yes. And I think as a cinematographer you are in a sense an artist first. You have to. Look. There's this quote, if the camera is the most interesting thing on set, you've got trouble. bigger problems you've than which one problems. it is. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> look, I learned a valuable lesson back in, 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 in 98. I was supposed to do a short film, a strop fest. They didn't talk to me. I thought the whole project had fallen over. I think it was Tuesday and the films had to be in Thursday. Rang me up and said, oh, can we shoot it tomorrow? I was like, what? <laughs> tomorrow? We've got nothing organised, you know, whatever. Yeah. Oh, no, look, can we do it tomorrow? And I was like, and I really went, oh, all right, I'm going to do it, but it's going to be one redhead. And I'm not going to use my camera. Um, we just use a DV camera. Yeah. So I just didn't want to lug a huge yeah. big camera around. And I, I went into it almost with a, because I didn't care, I have to be careful here, <laughs> but I didn't care so much. I broke all my own rules. Wow. I mean, let's just try that. Yeah, well, why not? Fuck yeah. <laughs> you know, all, I, t- I took risks I normally never would do. And in the end, the film turned out really well, ended up winning the best cinematography at Trot Fest. Wow. And, I, and, I, and I really made me look back at myself and go, I need to take more risks. I yeah, need to be more intuitive. I need to be more emotional. And I think that's something that because cinematography requires you to have, to get to that certain level of competence, you need to have a lot of attention to detail and precision and yes. care. And, and the first thing you do want to do is not fuck it up. Exactly. You know? And so the next big leap beyond that is letting go and taking those kind of risks. Yeah. And yeah. it's very hard to do. Yeah, it is hard to do. I will add, though, I think if you understand some of the technical fundamentals, mm. it allows you it's to take safer. more risks. Yeah. Because you can go, okay, I can push that, but I might just. You know, I might just qualify it here and just mm. cover my butt. Yep. Uh, so uh, without going into specifics, I'm sure Leonardo da Vinci understood his paints. Mm. He understood his canvas. He understood his stone. But the, <laughs> he wasn't a technician. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, uh, the other example of that that I think is uh, – that I often think about is Conrad Hall mm. on Butch Cassidy and the Sundance yep, Kid yep. overexposing the desert exteriors by three stops. And on that, those negatives back then, three stops overexposed was cool. right to the edge. So he had – Most studios he, wouldn't have let you do it. He, and I, I think the studio freaked out about it. But he was able to do it with such precision that he went right to the edge and didn't fall yep, off. Yeah, I will add I have worked with some very talented Oscar-winning – DOPs, you know, someone's just chatting to them and I'm, I'm a little surprised sometimes by their lack of technical knowledge but they are great artists. Yeah. And I assume they surround themselves with great technical people. Really a DOP Which, really shouldn't be running a camera. It, yeah. sh- it shouldn't really give a rat's. Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's someone should be doing – he's got bigger jobs to do than worrying about the camera. And, and that gets to something we were, we were almost going to veer into a moment ago of the, the relationships and the working – ethos yeah. of, of the team that makes a film. Let me tell you a little story. Uh, if I ask someone and if I talk to producers and directors, we're just having a chat, we finish shoot, blah, 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 and, and um, another DOP comes up. And comes up. Mm. I go, oh, what do you think of Bob? And <laughs> they tend to say three things. First one, oh, Bob, top guy. Talk, Jim, we're talking about Bob. Yeah. And you go, okay. And second thing, oh, he's fast. Wow. Oh, he's fast. He's great. <laughs> he's great to wear. He's fast, you know. Yeah. And the third one is, oh, yeah, and, and, and the pictures are good. That's so number three. that priority yeah, yeah. of number one, he's a pleasure to work with. I'm using Bob as an example because it could be a girl. Two, they're fast because, you know. It always matters. It always does matter, yeah. yeah. And if we go off on that tangent, I think skill and experience le- teaches you compromise. Yes. And where are the smart compromises and when to stand your ground. Which is also where a good knowledge of a thorough knowledge of grading and what's possible and what's easy Absolutely. and what's hard is a great tool when it comes because, to that. Yeah. But it's probably the single largest mistake I see with the less experienced people coming up mm. is they kind of steal production. Yeah. So we're lighting a scene and it's been two hours. Mm. And it's like, well, you've just stolen that time off the actors. Yeah. You've stolen the time off the coverage. You've got to 
and and you know if you've if you've got that cutter perfectly tuned but you don't have the coverage you don't have the performance yeah. none of it matters and, and let me add when it comes to general production I'm being very general here often the fiddling makes it worse mm. it's sometimes better to broad stroke it yep. and let it be a little bit more organic and not wait, oh, I could just put a little tiny tinkle in there and oh, I used to do it, I used to do this, you know, I'd have my little dedos and I'm oh, yeah, constantly yeah. putting it, you know, finessing it yep. and finesse away if everyone else is stuffing around with makeup. <laughs> yes. But, 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 but you're pleasing, the richest stage you're pleasing yourself and that's not valuable to production mm. and it's not valuable to yourself in the long run. Yeah, and often the 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 imperfections of the broad brushstrokes actually add to it, especially in drama. Yeah. Maybe a little less in commercials. Yeah, yeah. But certainly, yeah, you uh, can totally overwork. If you if you're doing a product shot, then that's a whole yeah. different matter. Yeah, and I do a lot of commercials, so I I, I find that I have to absolutely mm. <laughs> stop myself. If you're doing a drama, I'm 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 remo- I'm removing the drama. Yeah. Anything dramatic out of it by overlighting it, and mm-hmm. it's just yeah, yeah. And people respond to the organic. Yep, yep. Mm. Well, we could go on all day talking about this, but it's been fantastic. Until I need another coffee. Uh, I hope that didn't ramble too much. Not at all. It's hard being succinct. It's very hard always talking about cinematography, which is predominantly a visual process, Mm. and talking about it in using words. Yeah. It's always tough. And I think uh, one of the things that I guess – part of the impetus for doing this podcast is to be able to have these rambling conversations. Yeah. I think we've touched on some good, st- some good stuff there. Yeah. Tom, thank you for stopping in. Thank you, Ben.